You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. I want to let you know about a real estate opportunity uh, because housing's difficult here in Rapid right now. It's tough to find houses. So I just wanted to point your attention to 7013 East Daisy Drive in Blackhawk, South Dakota. It is a four-bedroom, two-bath house built in 2004. If you actually own this house, I'm sorry. This is such a great illustration. So anyway, <laughs> 1,900, 1,900 square feet on a quarter-acre lot. And uh, how much would you pay for this house? What, what is the price on this house? Well, actually, you shouldn't pay anything for this house because actually it is built on a collapsing gypsum mine. Oh, yeah, you know this house, right? It's just a few miles from here in Blackhawk. Wonderfully built house, beautiful place to live, but it's collapsing into a giant hole. And the builders have gone bankrupt. There's no way that anybody's going to be able to get any money for this. The owners have had to evacuate themselves. And this well-built home, because the foundation is poor, in fact, cavernously poor, it, uh, it's not a house that you should uh, invest yourself in at all, right? Just a total waste. Total waste of all the work and effort. And you guys know, some of you know the story of what's happening even in that in Blackhawk and all of the poor building and poor communication uh, and all of this wasted effort and people who are in, uh, in a tough spot. Let me tell you about another house. This is owned by LeBron Lackey. What a great name, LeBron Lackey. He's a doctor, and he built this home in 2017 on Mexico Beach called the Sand Castle. That's what they call their house. He and his uncle built this house in 2017. They took their precious time and they went above and beyond the building codes. On the coast of Florida, you have to be hurricane-proof, and they just went to the nth degree, paying 30% more on everything in terms of quality and design. They were somewhat mocked by just how, how much effort they were putting into this house and how over the top they were going. The, the footings on this house go 40 feet into the ground until it hits solid rock so that it's solid and it's steady. Well, just one year later in 2018, Hurricane Michael came through, and guess which house was the only house in the neighborhood that stood? It was a sandcastle, as he calls it. They spent all of this time and energy to build a house that, whose roots went way down, built with the best possible materials, spent more money than anyone else because they wanted to survive, as they said, the big one. They wanted to survive the big one. So we've got a tale of two houses, right? We've got a house that's built well, but on a poor foundation, and they have a house that's built really well to survive the big one, and it did. It survived the big one. So we have a foolish builder and a wise builder. We have one house that is in the, on the verge of collapsing under natural forces, and one that stands up to the most severe of natural forces. And that's exactly the illustration that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. So if you would have your scriptures open to God's word, this is exactly... This is exactly what Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount with, this call to action, the king's final call to us, ends with this illustration of a wise builder and a foolish builder, a house that stands and a house that collapses. So here's what God's word says, Matthew 7, verses 24 through 29. Everyone who then hears these words of mine, meaning this Sermon on the Mount, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. 
And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. That's how Jesus ends his sermon. And here's their response, verses 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of their scribes. Let's pray and ask the Lord to lead us today. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this. We've been calling this series the greatest sermon because it's the sermon that that is most famous from Jesus. And so, Lord, as we have journeyed through this and we come to the end and the King's closing call, God, I pray that you would cut us to the heart, that we would look at the foundation of our lives, that we would look at the authority that we're bowing to, and that we might see Jesus respond to his teachings and build our lives in such a way that it will survive the big one. It will survive the trials and challenges of life, and ultimately, it will survive Judgment Day. So, Lord, help us to heed the words of Jesus in all of the seriousness that he intends us to hear it with. God, help us to respond appropriately to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the king's closing call. He's finishing his massive sermon that has just cut to the heart in every way, and he's closing it with this illustration, and now you have two options in front of you. You're building a life. You're building a house. Everybody's building something with the time that they have on this earth. And he says, and he's telling us, location, 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 right? In real estate, location, location, location. Where you found and build your house will determine whether it stands for eternity or collapses, just like the illustration we saw. So two main points today. <coughs> Excuse me, I've still got this nagging cough. I get it every August and September, so it's not COVID. Just, you know. <laughs> two points, two points. Build your life on the king's teaching. And then the final two verses, bow your life to the king's authority. Two points. Build your life on the king's teaching and bow your life to the king's authority. So as we look at these two builders, this illustration that Jesus gives, he goes, everyone falls into two categories. Everyone is like two builders. And let's talk for just a moment about what the two builders share in common. Because there's a lot that they share in common. The two builders look so much alike on the surface. Both of them hear the exact same words from Jesus, right? That's what it says in verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine. Then in verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine. Exactly. So these are both people who have heard the words of Jesus. These are both people who've heard the word of God, who've heard the gospel, but there's two different responses. The other thing that they have in common is that they build the exact same house. There's no distinction about the houses. Verse 24, the wise man who built his house. Verse 26, the foolish man who built his house. Jesus isn't highlighting that one house is bigger or better than the other. It seems like he's indicating that they're both building a life that on the surface looks exactly the same. Like until the storm comes, you wouldn't know the difference between these two houses. It's not until the storm comes that we'll see which, what is different about these two houses. But they build the same kind of house. They look the same on the outside. Both potentially look like Christians. Both maybe love and like the teachings of Jesus. They've heard them, they know them, they maybe even approve of them. And they're both building houses that look exactly the same. And they both face the same stormy test. In verse 25, the wise man, his house, it says the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat on the house. See that progression? The rain fell, floods came, winds blew, beat on the house. Verse 27, the foolish man faces the same exact test. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat against that house. They both face the same test, the same judgment is coming for both of them. 
So there's so much in common. There's so much that's the same between these two. Everyone, everyone who hears these words of mine will be in one of these two. You'll build a house somewhere. You'll build your life somewhere. You'll found your life on something. You will trust a foundation somewhere. And the same stormy test is coming for everybody. Nobody escapes it. Everybody's built on the coast. The hurricane is coming. The hurricane of a fallen world where suffering and difficulty comes and ultimately the hurricane of God's wrath will come and test what our foundation is. So we see everybody's in the same boat here. So what are the destiny-changing differences? Because they both end up in vastly different situations. One is successful in a house that will last forever. One is totally ruined. Everything that he's done has been a waste. His entire life has been a waste. What's the destiny-changing differences between these two situations? Well, one stands strong and one falls greatly, right? Just Captain Obvious here, right? One stands, one doesn't. Verse 25 at the end, it says, and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. In verse 27, the foolish man's house fell and its fall was great. It was catastrophic. It was a total loss. Nothing left standing, totally obliterated. So that's one of the differences. One stands, one doesn't. Why? Why does one stand and one doesn't? Well, because one builder is wise one builder is foolish, right? It's very obvious. Verse 24, Jesus calls the one that builds a life on his teaching wise. He's thinking. He knows what he's doing. He understands the implications of his decisions. Verse 26, the foolish man. Jesus renders a verdict of foolishness for those that hear his teaching and refuse to build on it, refuse to act on it, refuse to obey it. Because, number three, because one does the teaching and the other does not. One hears it, maybe even likes it, but decides to build on whatever foundation he wants. One hears it and goes, oh, there's only one way to escape the big one, and that's to build here. That's to take the Beatitudes seriously. That's to become salt and light. That's to realize that the law goes to the heart. External behavior is not enough. I need to be transformed on the inside. It means that I need to have a piety that's Godward. I need to have a God-centered life and not just a religious life on the outside. I need to banish anxiety. I need to stop judging. I need to ask, seek, knock. All of the things that Jesus talked about going, you need to build here. This needs to become who you are. That's the difference. One hears the teaching of Jesus and it changes who they are, changes how they live, changes what they trust in. And the fool hears these words of mine but continues to just go whatever direction he wants. So both men are presented with rock to build on. Both are given the same opportunity to build. Both men can presume, we can presume, maybe even loved the good foundation, but only one built on it. How? In Luke chapter 6, Jesus tells almost this exact same story, and he gives an extra detail that I think is really helpful. Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49. I don't know, is this on the, oh, it is on the screen. So watch this. So Jesus does this same story. I think he's teaching it at a different time, but this was such a good illustration that I think he used it multiple times. And here he adds a little bit of a wrinkle that I think gives us some insight on what is so different about these two builders. Starting in verse 46 of Luke 6, or yeah, chapter 6, verse 46 through 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? You call me master, but then don't act like I'm a master. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house. Now look at this detail. Who dug down deep? Who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock? 
And when the flood rose and the stream broke against that house, and it could not shake the house because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. He's just building. He's just living life, just doing whatever, without thinking about what it's grounded on. And when the stream broke against it, it fell immediately. Immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So we conclude from Luke chapter 6 and Matthew that the foolish man is lazy. The foolish man is lazy. He looks at the teachings of Jesus, gives a thumbs up. I'm glad other people follow it, but I'm not going to put in the effort to build on that rock. I want my house to be closer to the ocean, and I'm just going to assume no storms will come, right? There's no fear of judgment here. Lazy. He's lazy. He doesn't do the work to make sure that the foundation he's building on is solid. The foolish man is also hasty. He just wants to get a house up quick, right? He's just thinking about the moment. The foolish man is also short-sighted. He's not thinking anything about trials and tribulations. He's not thinking at all about the big one that will come. So he's short-sighted. He's only in the moment. He's lazy, he's hasty, he's short-sighted, and he is arrogant. He hears the instructions of Jesus and then decides that he knows better, right? Build on this rock. Jesus, I am all for people building on that rock. I'm building over here. What an arrogance. What an arrogance in this foolish man. Lazy, hasty, short-sighted, arrogant. How dare anyone tell me how to build my house and where to build it? By contrast, the wise man is careful, right? He's very careful about where he's going to build his life. Carefully considering the teachings of Jesus. He's deliberate. He digs down deep. When he finds the truth, he then squares it up, makes sure that his life is clearly, that the house is very well built within the teachings of Jesus, right? Very well built so that it stands So that the pilings, like that house that we saw that survived the hurricane, make sure that it goes all the way down to something solid. The pilings on that house go down 40 feet. I think I mentioned that before. That just blows my mind. Deliberate. Dig down, making sure that I'm solidly on the teaching of Jesus. So he's careful. He's deliberate. He's farsighted. He wants to think about this house lasting forever. He wants to build a house that lasts forever. The foolish man is only thinking about the moment. The wise man is thinking about, I want this house to last forever. And ultimately, he's humble and teachable, right? He hears the message of Jesus, and he submits himself to the instruction that Jesus gives. Because Jesus says there's a judgment coming, and he's the judge, and he's the one that's going to judge that. And he says, so therefore, build your house so that it passes my judgment. I'm giving you the blueprints. I'm giving you the codes that you need to build by, because I'm the judgment. I'm going to judge your house. The storm of God's judgment is coming. And if you blow me off, your house will... James 1 puts it this way. We're, we're going to look at this passage in about a month from now. James 1, 22 through 25 says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, just continues to build on that house, no matter how much he's getting mocked, no matter how much it's costing him, he's going to build here. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So I think this storm that comes is the trials and tests of life. I think that's part of it, but ultimately I think it might be God's judgment as well. This language of building to survive a storm sounds a whole lot like Genesis 6, right? Genesis 6, the whole world is wicked before God's sight and he's going to wipe it out with a flood. And he finds one man, Noah. 
says, no, there's only one way that humanity is going to survive this flood, and that is if you follow my instructions exactly. I need you to build me a boat, and I need you to follow it exactly, and I need you to warn people that there is a judgment coming, and their houses, their wisdom, their ideas, all of that is going to be wiped out. There is no escaping this except for the salvation that I provide. And here's the salvation that I am providing. Follow my teaching. Put your trust in me. And so for Noah, for 100 years, is building this boat, getting mocked out of his mind because he is investing everything that he owns in building this boat. And then guess what happens? The big one comes. And who survives? The one who trusted the promises of God and constructed their life in such a way that they would be saved through the judgment of God. We have that same story here. Jesus is essentially saying that judgment, the flood of God's judgment is coming for every one of you, and you've all been given blueprints on how to survive it. Build your house on the rock, and it will survive. Build your house anywhere else, and it will be washed away. This rock metaphor that points to Christ is all over the Old Testament. Psalm 118, Isaiah 8, Isaiah 28, Daniel 2, Matthew 21 in the New Testament, Acts 4, Romans 9, Ephesians 2, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Peter 2, I could go on and on. This idea of Jesus being the foundation that you build on all throughout Scripture. Interestingly, the other place where Jesus talks about building on a rock is in Matthew chapter 16, where he, tells his, he asks his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they say, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus goes, that's exactly right. That's what Peter says. You're exactly right, Peter. And that wasn't revealed to you on your own. You didn't come up with that. God revealed that to you. He says, you're Peter, and on this confession, is what I think he means, on this confession of me being the Christ, I will build on that rock a church that will survive the gates of hell. It's the same imagery. If we build our lives on the rock, Christ promises to also build us as a people together on the rock and we'll survive the judgment. We will invade hell. We will crash the gates of hell and we will rescue people onto the rock of safety where we've built our lives on the rock and Christ himself has built us together as a people. Like the ark passing through the waters of judgment, we can pass through the waters of God's judgment firm through trials and tribulations together as we build on this rock and Christ builds us on the rock. So essentially, the question then is, you are building a house, that's for sure. It is, what is it being built on? What is your house, your life being built on? Will it survive the big one? Are you building your life in such a way that you could survive a cancer diagnosis or the loss of a spouse or a child? Are you building in such a way that your roots go down deep that you could survive horrible trials? But even more importantly, are you built in such a way that you could survive Judgment Day, that you could, sup, that you could pass the test? And the Sermon on the Mount is the blueprints that if we'll trust in Christ and build on his teaching, model his teaching, live on his teaching, he promises us we will survive. We will make it through. If we build on any other foundation, no matter how good the house looks, no matter how expensive the marble floors are, no matter how glorious the yard and the fence, it's all collapsing into a mine of judgment. The storm is coming. What are you building on? The final two verses are the people's response to his sermon because they get it. They get the point. Like, Jesus is not pulling any punches. He is dividing in half. Humanity is in two categories. Those that follow me as kingdom citizens, those who do not. And he is the split. He is the splitting point. What you do with Jesus matters. And so 
The second call here is bow your life to the king's authority, verses 28 and 29. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. It's like their knees buckled under the the weight of his teaching. And for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So it's funny, they come out of Jesus' teaching and they're like, man, Jesus is so loving. It was just like a warm hug hearing him talk about judgment, right? No, he is being loving, but there's danger ahead. He needs to warn them. It's not like, man, Jesus is so comforting. There is comfort in this sermon, but you could be comforted right on your way to hell. He is thunderously authoritative. He is sounding like a king. He is sounding bossy and commanding and demanding, right? Isn't he? Like read the Sermon on the Mount and you go, oh man, like he thinks he's in charge. He thinks he's in charge. Now interestingly, they, the only teaching that they had known was the teaching of the scribes. The scribes were kind of like the lawyers and scholars of their day. They're just good researchers. They would grab from other scholars and rabbis and they would kind of put together a report and go, well, the law says this and this guy interprets this. They didn't really teach with authority. They just sort of compiled the research on what the teachings of God's word were and then sort of presented that to the people. Not a bad way to go, but that's not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't quote anybody. Jesus goes, you have heard it said, but I say. And I'll tell you what God sees in secret. Like, he, he speaks for God in this message. He speaks for God. And let me just show you uh, some examples. His authority is demonstrated in this message. Let me just rattle off a bunch of bullet points for you. Jesus tells you what the blessed life is in the Beatitudes in chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Jesus tells you with authority that suffering for him is blessed and puts you on the right side of history. Jesus says his followers are supernaturally changed into salt and light. He changes them so that they're different from the rest of humanity. Jesus in authority says that he is the ultimate interpreter of the law and the entire fulfillment of the law. That's pretty audacious. That's chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. He determines, Jesus claims to determine where you rank in the kingdom. Jesus knows the heart sins that will send men to hell, the heart sins that will send men to hell, chapter 5, verses 20 through 47. Jesus knows exactly what God meant in every law, chapter 5, verses 20 through 47. Jesus describes what kind of worship God sees and rewards, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Jesus tells you what God sees. Like, that's pretty, that's pretty audacious of what God sees. Jesus tells us how to approach God appropriately, speaks on behalf of God. This is how God wants you to enter. Jesus in authority tells you how your forgiveness is connected to God's forgiveness, chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Jesus tells you exactly what kind of eternal investment will pay off and what won't, as if he knows all of time and history. He knows exactly what eternal investments will pay off, chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Jesus authoritatively tells us exactly how money rivals God in your heart puts his finger right on it, on your heart, and how money is a huge challenge to God. Chapter 6, verse 24. Jesus commands you not to be anxious and then commits God the Father to care for you. He makes commitments on behalf of God. God will care for you. I've already committed to it. Jesus commands you not to judge, for he knows exactly how to measure that judgment back to you. That's authoritative. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Jesus commands you to ask, seek, and knock because he knows exactly what the Father, how the Father will respond. He knows that, and he speaks that with authority. He's not quoting anybody else. He knows that because he is one with the Father. Jesus authoritatively summarizes the whole law in one sentence. 
chapter 7, verse 12. Jesus describes two gates, two paths, two destinies, two prophets, two professions, two builders, two foundations, two houses, and two results in chapter 7, verses 13 through 27 that we're looking at right now. And he unequivocally describes himself and his teaching as the difference between those two things. That to be inside of his kingdom is to be safe for eternity. To be outside of his kingdom is total ruin and devastation. You blow Jesus off, you are a fool, and your life will be wasted, foolish, ruined, banished, cast away, and burned up. That's the line he draws. Jesus is the difference between being blessed and cursed. He's the difference between light and darkness. He's the difference between righteousness and wickedness. He's the difference between hypocrisy and authenticity. He's the difference between anxiety and security. He's the difference between judgment and mercy. He's the difference between life and death. He's the difference between fire and salvation. He's the difference between good fruit and thorns. He's the difference between false prophecy and true prophecy. He's the difference between heaven and hell. He's the difference between wisdom and foolishness. He is the difference between rock and sand. He is the difference between survival and sabotage. That's what he says in this sermon. But that's not all. Because this authority of Jesus is consistent throughout the entire Gospel of Matthew. Let me give you another list. Matthew 1.1, the very first verse, says this is the book of, gene- of the genealogy, the son of David, the king, the son of Abraham, the father of all of faith. That guy, the fulfillment of that. That's how the, verse, that's how the book starts. And then it continues in chapter 2. Now Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod. Wise men from the east came from Jerusalem, saying, Who is this that's been born king of the Jews? For we saw, saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. There has been a heavenly authority that has entered earth, and the wise men knew it, and went on a long road trip to go, we got to worship this baby. Somehow, heaven entered earth, and we want to worship it. Matthew 3, John the Baptist, who is, told, who, is, who is said is the greatest of all of the Old Testament prophets. He's the greatest figure he's, because he's introducing people to Jesus. And here's what he says about Jesus. I baptize you with water for repentance, But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, greater than authority, whose sandals I am unworthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He's coming, and he's going to bring judgment. And he's the greatest thing that's ever come. Matthew chapter 9, verse 6. Jesus heals a paralytic lowered through the roof. And here's what he says. Jesus says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And then the crowd saw it. They were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. That's a theme throughout the gospel. Jesus has authority over everything, heaven and earth. Matthew 10.1, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits. You're just going to go beat up on some demons for a while. Jesus can just give that to people. He just gives that away. That's the kind of authority he has. To cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. He just hands that out like candy to these disciples. And now they have authority over the spiritual realm. Matthew 13, 54, coming to his own town, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? His authority awed them. Matthew 22, verses 33. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So we tend to think of Jesus as being just this cuddly guy. But the people who are actually encountering him going, man, he's a king. And he is demanding everything. And it's awesome and terrifying and so good. 
In fact, Matthew 27, Jesus breathes his last on the cross. And here's what happens when the Son of God takes his last breath. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. And the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints that had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of their tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. How weird would that be? His death sent such a shockwave that it brought life to dead people. When the centurion who was with them, now he's not a believer, he's a professional executioner, he does this all day every day. Watching people die is just part of the deal, and he has never seen a death like this. And watch what the centurion says. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. So the gospel is unequivocal about the authority and kingship of Jesus. And the people that were hanging out with him didn't miss it. They got it. Now, not all of them built on the rock. Many of them built on sand. But there was no question on who Jesus claimed to be and what he demonstrated himself to be, which was one of great authority. And the very last verses in the book of Matthew come from Jesus himself. And look at how Jesus evaluates himself. And look where the book of Matthew goes. Yeah, that's a good spot to leave the Jesus story. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus is raised. He's going to give his final words to his people before ascending into heaven. He's going to give them the great commission. And listen to how Jesus puts this. This is Jesus' final words. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and Jesus came and said to them, all what? Authority. All authority. This is the one thing you need to know before I go. I am in charge of everything. All authority, where? In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Everything goes through me. There's not one rogue molecule in the universe, as R.C. Sproul says. I'm king over all of it. Then he gives a command. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded. Observe all that I've commanded you, which is exactly what he said. Teach them to build on the rock. Show them where the rock is so that they'll survive judgment, and then teach them to build there. Because I'm king of everything, and the big one's coming, right? So Jesus, in a sense, sort of finishes the Sermon on the Mount with this charge, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You see that connection of authority and obey my teaching, follow me. Jesus rightfully claims full authority in all places forever. And then as a king, issues an overarching, irrevocable command with two parts. You can't make any modifications to any of this command because the king has said it, and he's very clear and careful about what he has said. The command is very simple, make disciples of all the nations. How do we do that? Well, when you tell them the gospel and they respond and become disciples, baptize them. Baptize those who become disciples. And then the second part, teach them to obey all my commands. Teach them to build on rock. Not just hear preaching, but to believe it and to obey it, right? Baptize those who become disciples because in baptism you're going, I'm building my house here. I have found rock. And I want the whole world to know I'm building here. I used to build over here on sand and I am abandoning that. But now I want everyone in the world to know, I want my brothers and sisters to know that I have found rock to build on. And I am going to build a house right here. And I invite everyone to come and enjoy building their house here. I identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and I'm building here now. And I'm abandoning all other buildings that I have done. The risen king of all things commands you to repent and believe and become a disciple. 
to abandon your house of sand and build whatever house you can. It doesn't matter how big and brilliant the house is, it's all on what it's, it's built on. So you might just have a little tent that you've constructed, a couple pieces of metal leaning up against each other. That's all I got, but it'll survive the storm. It's not about having a glorious life that's really impressive to the world. It's about, is it built in faith on Jesus Christ? Lord jo- uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, If any man asks, why should I listen to the Sermon on the Mount? Why should I put it into practice? Why should I believe that it is the most important thing in life? The answer is because of the person who preached it. That is the authority behind the sermon. And that's what they walked away with. They walked away not going, man, did you hear that teaching? They said, man, did you hear that king? What blew them away in the Sermon on the Mount was not how he handled the law. It was like, this man is incredible. They were in awe of the person, not all the little rules and stuff. Like, those are important. He wants us to obey those. But what saves is Christ, right? And coming to him in faith and walking with him. John Stott put it this way, the main question his audience and us are left with is not what will you do with the sermon, but what will you do with this king, with this God? What will you do with him? Will you be astonished at him and bow the knee? So the two questions then are, or the two commands really are, build your life on the king's teaching and bow your life to the king's authority. It's a really pretty simple message. And the question is, what is your life being built on? You may, as you read through the Sermon on the Mount and gone through the sermon series, realize that you've been building on the wrong thing. You've been building on the approval of people. You've been building on the success at work. You've been building on sand. The most important thing you could do is today, on August 28, 2022, is to abandon that. Don't go one more day of sinking any more energy and time into a house that will fall. And today, today, start building on the rock. And yeah, it's embarrassing to start this late. I've wasted so much of my life. Doesn't seem like Jesus cares at all about that. Whatever's on the rock will survive, no matter how piddly it looks. And anything built on sand, no matter how impressive it looks, will fall. It's very simple, very straightforward. And the second question is, who does your life bow to? Are you bowing to yourself, your own comfort? Are you bowing to the approval of others? Are you bowing to success in the world? Are you bowing to the king of all things who came for you, who lived a perfect life for you, who died your death on the cross to take your wrath, to take God's wrath against you, rose again for you, is interceding in heaven, praying for you right now, that you would heed this message and that you would believe it, and who is again coming and will judge. The big one is coming, and then one day will establish an eternity of perfection. You will bow to Jesus one day. You either do it now in worship and salvation, or you do it on judgment day in fear and damnation. You're not getting out of bowing to Jesus. Do it now. Bow to him. Abandon the house of sand. Construct a house on rock. Christ will construct us as a house together, his church. You'll bow one day to Jesus, one way or the other. Let's take a moment and let's just bow. 
And maybe you want to have just the Sermon on the Mount open and just maybe as you look through that over this next few minutes, maybe your eyes will be drawn to a certain passage and you just need, God, help me build my life there. Help me build that way. Help me to abandon a life of sand, a life built on sand, and help me to build on the life, build a life on the rock. I'm just going to give you a moment to just respond however the Lord leads. If you want to bow and pray, if you want to team up with someone and pray for them, like I'm just going to give you a moment to respond however the Lord's leading you to respond, and then I'll pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. You have provided a rock because you love us. You have sent your son because you love us. You have warned us of the disaster that is awaiting us because you love us. You came and live a perfect life because you love us. You teach us hard things because you love us. You died on the cross because you love us. You rose again because you love us. You are interceding for us because you love us and you are bringing judgment because you want to rid all that causes pain and death, crying in this world. You plan and promise to remove. And so it would help us to cross that line of faith, to put our trust in you, to live out the principles of this sermon, not in our own strength, but as Romans talks about, the obedience of faith. It's out of faith that we obey, not because we're earning your favor, but because you have given it. And because you have given us your favor, because you've given us the rock, we can now obey out of joy, not out of fear, not in any sense of earning, because you have given us the kingdom. God, help us to be poor in spirit. Help us to mourn our sin. Help us to be meek and humble more worried about our own spiritual condition than worrying about what everybody else is doing. God, give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Give us a love for mercy that we might receive mercy. God, give us purity in heart so that we see you. God, we thank you that at whatever cost that we pay in persecution or difficulty or mockery for the way that we've lived, that you'll pay that back, that we are on the right side of history because we've built on the rock. Preserve us through the big one. Thank you for taking the big one for us. And I pray that all of my friends here in this room would today look under their feet and find themselves standing on rock. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.